Hello there. Welcome to Deadly, the hottest talk show about sin since 1210 CE. This is your host, Alex Ennis, and today I'm meeting with Amanda Newber to talk about the sin of pride. Amanda is the Associate Director of Temple University's Honors Program, and while her professional life is in higher education, she got her starts in psychology. She earned her Master's in Experimental Social Psychology from St. Joseph's University and is now a doctoral candidate in the Educational Psychology Program at Temple University. She's here today to talk to us about pride. That was fun. I didn't know you were going to be giving me a bio. Yeah. It's like my gift from me to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So we start all the episodes the same way. Okay. And that's asking you how you would define this sin. Well, you know that, spoiler to the listeners, you gave me these questions ahead of time. It's true. Yeah. So I looked up the Merriam-Webster definition of pride first. Okay. Cause I, and I'll give you my own conceptualization of what I think it is, but... So Merriam-Webster says that pride is a quality or state of being proud, a reasonable or justifiable self-respect. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. But then there's the alternate definition, which is inordinate self-esteem, conceit, a feeling that you're more important or better than other people. And that, I think, is why pride is considered one of the deadly sins, is the sort of the ugly side of pride. Because, you know, when thinking about it and my own understanding of it, obviously it's healthy to have self-esteem mm-hmm. and it's healthy to have perceived ability to perform a task to know your strengths um to feel good about yourself you know yeah. feel proud about your accomplishments but i think what's interesting about pride is that it can get ugly really fast um especially if it's hinged to an aspect of your identity that you haven't fully explored or is sort of fragile or you sort of think comes from uncontrollable circumstances. Mm -hmm. And thus any sort of like threat to that pride can really be dangerous or deadly. Spooky. In the case of the seven deadly sins. So, um, yeah, it's that ugly side of pride. It's the conceitful, it's the um, pompous side of pride that can be problematic. So, okay. Was that good enough? That was great. (laughs) It was. My pride cannot be hurt in this conversation (laughs) about pride. Um, So I've been really like working this podcast off of Dante's definitions of pride. Right. So do you have your definition of pride? I do. I have it prepared. Oh, awesome. Um, So Dante defines pride in like a thousand different ways. Mm -hmm. And pride is really like one of the sins that has a bunch of specific definitions. So gluttony is kind of another one where like gluttony can be eating too fast, eating too early, eating too late, eating too delicately, which means um, like being picky. But pride is also like that, whereas some other sins are like very straightforward. Yeah. Just Lust don't do this. Is, yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen to episode one for that. Oh. <laughs> um, so Dante defines pride as pride in competitiveness and competition. Pride in lineage or, like, your ancestry, pride in political power, pride in one's own children's accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And then there's pride in architecture and buildings, which is kind of like overindulgence in art and in architecture specifically. And then there's other types of pride that Dante doesn't mention, but one is also um, pride in, like, expensive or flashy clothes Mm -hmm. among that kind of – Materialistic. Yeah, like materialism and especially, like, displays of your clothes. Now that we have our definitions – So what is your definition? My definition? Yeah, you said you had it prepared. 
That was my definition. Is Dante's definition? Oh, what's your definition, Alex? Oh, Alex's me as definition. an individual? Yeah. I thought I was the one conducting this interview. <laughs> um, so before you knew about pride, did you think it was a good thing or a bad thing? I always thought that pride is a good thing. And I have really always considered myself a pretty prideful person, even if that pride is sometimes false and like fake it till you make it sort of things. Um, yeah, I've always been pretty prideful. And my family will tell you that. Like, I've always been a little bit arrogant, which is awful. I've speaking to the choir. Right. Right. <laughs> but like, uh, like, it's because I'm always negotiating with that. What is the healthy dose of pride? Where where does that line lie? And sometimes I go overboard. Sometimes I turn into a jerk. <laughs> um, but, oh, so my definition of pride. Yeah. What I guess would be, I tend to equate pride with self-confidence. It becomes sinful when that self-confidence crosses a line into harm. Mm-hmm. When Dr. Bowles came and talked to me, we talked a lot about harm and the harm that can come from greed. And I think that that's very applicable here. Oh, for sure. Is when pride becomes harmful, is that's when it's sinful. But up until it becomes harmful, I think that it's it's appropriate. But when it becomes what you hinge all of your self-worth on, mm-hmm. and like I said, you know, if you feel as though the thing that you have pride on, the thing that you have pride for, so we'll use academics for an example because that's where my research is and that's, yeah. we'll talk a lot about sort of like pride when it comes to achievement, right? If you believe that your achievements and your smartness and your academic ent- identity comes from not just your hard work but something that is innate within you, like you think you were born smart or mm-hmm. you, you are intelligent – and it becomes the entirety of your being, like in your self-definition, but not in a way that you knew you had to work for it or there was effort for, effort for it. If, if it's something that's uncontrollable to you, when that gets threatened, that's when you're going to engage in really maladaptive behaviors to try to protect it. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. I think so much of pride is what you, how you self-identify and those are the, and, and if it's too, if you have too much pride on the on aspects of your identity and you're not able to explore or question or accept criticism, um, that's when it can start getting deadly. Hmm. Interesting. So this is not something I had planned on talking about. (laughs) Um, And I'm always trying to be very conscious of when the podcast stops being about the sins and just starts being about me. (laughs) Um, But so I was talking to you earlier and most of my listeners are my friends, but hi friends, hi friends, <laughs> hey mom. <laughs> um, but recently, so I'm an English major, but have recently discovered this like inexplicable love for geology, and I'm trying to like graduate and become a geologist. Um, and so I've like had this rapid shift from the liberal arts and like English and writing and all that good stuff to science, math. And I haven't done math in, like, four years. Mm-hmm. Last time I did math, I was in high school. I haven't done chem in six years because I did it in early high school. It's a long time. Right. And so, I'm, like a lot of honors students, I do hinge a lot of my self-worth on my intelligence and yeah. my ability to su- succeed academically. And so this semester has been a real test of that pride. And because I'm not going to do as well in these classes as I historically have done in all of my classes because I haven't done this in a long time. And I've really been grappling with that. And that is where, just like we were talking about, pride has become harmful to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And has really affected a lot of 
my self-identification mm-hmm. as a smart person, mm-hmm. which sounds foolish. But, but is so true. Yeah. And so – And very normal. Good. Because <laughs> it it's definitely happening. Um, At least normal from the students that yeah. I study. <laughs> right. Well, And not even study. Work with every single day. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me to our first question. I gave you these all these different definitions of pride uh-huh. by Dante and one by Peter Idley, which is the one um, involving clothing and like right, representations right, right. of yourself. Materialism. And I was wondering if like any of them strike you as particularly interesting. Yeah. So the ones that are most interesting to me is competitiveness. A, because I tend to see myself as a very competitive person. Mm-hmm. But also because, you know, competition, especially when it comes to pride, I think of those people who get in arguments just for the sake of argument. And even if halfway through the argument they realize they're wrong, they still won't back down because it's a competition. Or they pride themselves only on beating and being better than other people. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of comparison that builds pride. And when you're constantly comparing yourself to someone else and that's where you build your pride, you're eventually setting yourself up for some sort of failure. Because you can't always be better than every single other person. So anyway, competitiveness is really a big deal to me. The pride in one's children's accomplishments. And I guess just also individual accomplishments. That one wasn't necessarily listed by pride, like pride in your own accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But I think that you can that could become dangerous too if you didn't actually um, – sorry – I have a cold to all of the listeners, so I'm in trouble breathing. So uh, not only just pride in one's children's accomplishments, but I think there could be an over-exaggeration of pride in your own accomplishments, especially if you're gathering the accomplishments simply for the fact of gathering the gold stars mm-hmm. and not for the not for the actual journey, right? So like yeah. learning – not learning for the sake of learning, but learning just to get the A – People people put a lot of pride in their A's yeah. without actually having earned those A's. Yep. And so that can get dangerous, um, especially from an educational psychology perspective and motivation perspective. Yeah, so those are the ones that really strike out to me. What you were saying about accomplishments and people who get the A just for the A, actually my geology professor, Jesse Thornburg, everyone should take him, he's amazing, <laughs> recently came to class with a metaphor And I loved it. I'm excited. Yeah, it was amazing. And I've been thinking about it for days. He was saying life is like playing Tetris where once you like finally get a roll or (laughs) once you finally get a row and you get that accomplishment, it disappears, but the stakes get higher. And I'm just floored because I'm like, oh, yeah, that is absolutely true. And I feel like that metaphor is very applicable to people who only get the A's for the sake of getting an A. Because if you aren't, and if you're pursuing that from an earnest intellectual standpoint of, I want to consume this knowledge, you will leave that class with that knowledge. But And the grade doesn't – is, is could the grade be a is cherry a bonus. on top. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It could be a bonus or it could be meaning really nothing to you. Right. But if you're going just for the A and you leave that class with no additional knowledge and no actual content, the stakes are getting higher. But it looks like you've accomplished something, but you haven't. The only thing that's changed is yeah. the stakes. I'm going to put – my beloved pre-med majors on blast. Yeah. But I feel like and, – and it's honestly to no fault of their own. It's the environment and the culture and the context yeah. in which they're being educated that I think really perpetuates that idea. And they're told you can only get into the best college or you can only go to med school if you have perfect grades and mm-hmm. perfect MCAT scores. 
And so for them, the stakes are so high because if they feel as – even if they're struggling in the content knowledge, they still do everything that they can to get the best grade that they can because they think that that's going to be the entry card. And, and it is. I yeah. mean, it, it really is. But it's hard with that population that's being told by everyone around them, you have to get this grade or you're not going to have a future. Yeah. To then not switch the motivation to being getting the grade for getting the grade. And it's hard for me as an advisor, as an educator, to be pushing to those students. You should be learning to learn and the grade will come as a byproduct when that's a lot easier said than done. When you feel as though your whole future is sort of hinged on your GPA. We're told we have to learn science, math, English, history, all of these things. And we're never asked, hey, what do you want to learn? And that's when we get to college. And I think that when you get to college, you suddenly have the option. And some students are able to recognize that and celebrate it and choose the thing that they want, regardless of external pressure of, will I get a job? Will my parents be happy with this? Will I do well? But some students are affected by those factors, right? Mm -hmm. And it's my hope that every college student does eventually get to that place of true just intellectual curiosity and satisfaction. I don't think it's reality. Mm -mm. But like I said, like I see myself as a case study for that. I came in as a criminal justice major. I was like, I'll be a lawyer and make so much money. (laughs) Had like an identity crisis in sophomore year. I was like, I can't do this. And Ruth was like, just do the thing you're interested in. And I said, okay, I'll be an English major. And then panic because everybody's like, what are you going to do with that English major? And then last year, like, I was in this geology class. It was my last gen ed ever, <laughs> of course. And I'm just sitting there consuming this material and just constantly thinking, like, this is so cool. What? I can do this as a job? This is so cool. And I should not say this, but my poor parents, when I came to them and I was like, hey, I think – this geology thing might be cool. They were like, please don't. Just please, like, please just stick with being an environmental lawyer. That's what I wanted to do before geology. Just stick with this. My mom was like, Alex, please just make this the last stop. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. But it's so funny, though, because everything that you're talking, every all the decisions that you've made, there's there's a theme. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've gotten closer every time. I mean, but yeah, I mean, there's there there are definitely common threads. Yeah. So when I decided I want to be a geologist, I wasn't necessarily met with that social acceptance of like, yay, good for you. Everybody was like, what are you doing? Yeah. You, like, for lack of a better response, like, you dummy, you're about (laughs) to graduate. You can't just do this. One of the few people who were like super on board was my geology professor. And I think he saw me and he was like, oh, I got one to convert. Um, (laughs) And I knew it was the right thing because just from talking with my geology professor and talking with a couple close friends and from, most importantly, what I felt inside myself mm-hmm. of, oh, I love this, that was all I needed. I think that that was like prideful in a way, but it was a healthy pride because I was like, this is important to me. I can feel myself loving it. I can feel myself being good at it. Yeah. And I'm going to go after it even if – the external pressures of life are resistant to that. So if you had that, – that is absolutely an example of healthy pride, of knowing your strengths and being proud of the things that you're good at and knowing it enough to enact some sort of motion or movement, right? But if you had unhealthy pride, you never would have switched from being – wanting to be a lawyer. And it's not even that you would have switched from wanting to be a lawyer. You wouldn't have allowed yourself to change your major to something that would not have led to law Mm -hmm. because people with unhealthy pride would say, I can't quit. 
I can't give up. Changing my major is failure. And I hear that all the time. People who are miserable in their major or miserable with their chosen career path, but they think that switching means that they're a failure. Whoa. And that they have to follow through on their accomplishment and they have to follow through on what they set their mind on. Instead of thinking to themselves, acknowledging what you did and and being open to exploration and identity development and listening to the voice inside, they're either completely warped by external pressures or they've gotten this twisted sense of this twisted sense of what pride is in that it means I can't give up. Mm. Which is why I find a lot of problems with the whole emphasis that's being put right now on this term grit and how grit is being talked about so much. And you have to have grit and you have to have perseverance. You have to have resilience. And yes, you should have resilience, of course. You know, if you encounter an obstacle, you can't just completely crumble. But there's a difference between beating your head against a brick wall until the wall eventually cracks. But what did you You also cracked your head yeah. in, in the process, right? Or pushing towards a goal, but every once in a while taking a step back and looking down the line of the concrete wall and seeing if a door opened, yeah. if there's another way around, if you can climb it. So like really, that's that's my metaphor when it comes to grit. The way that it's talked about now is grit is you keep banging your head against that wall, whereas healthy motivation, healthy pride would say, I should be taking a step back and seeing if there's a different way around it. Yeah. That's going to make my life better and keep my well-being in check and keep my identity in check and actually is the way that I actually want to go. So good for you for having healthy pride. Thank and you. Knowing, but not a, but it, I think for a little bit too, though, you had to be humble. So it wasn't oh, – yeah. you had to put your pride aside, your pride of cons- – your pride of – once you've told everybody, because I hear this a lot too, students are afraid to change their majors because they've already told everyone mm-hmm. that they're going to be a doctor. Yeah. Or they've told everyone that they're going to be a lawyer. And now there's expectations. Yeah. And then they change their mind. And they feel like the only justifiable way to change their mind is to have another answer. That's mm-hmm. better. Oh, yeah. So like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore. I'm going to be an environmental lawyer who saves the refugees. Right. <laughs> You know, that was like, just to be clear, that was an actual career path. I was talking with Barbara Gorka. I was like, I want to work on legally protecting climate refugees. That's an actual thing. There is nothing wrong with that. (laughs) But, you know, I think you, you know, what's, what's cool about you is that you're able to put your pride aside and really truly explore and be able to acknowledge to yourself, okay, this is actually, you know, I need to be open to change. I need to be open to like making different decisions. Whereas a lot of people, if they have unhealthy pride, that will get in their own way. Yeah, well, I guess that I think my definition of pride is evolving because before truly this moment, it was an extremely internal, extremely introspective sin. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so when we talk about the seven sins as a whole, pride and envy are closely connected. Yeah. In Dante's Purgatory, they're the first two terraces. Pride is the first terrace and envy is the second. And it's kind of looked at as pride is this inward thing where you are thinking a lot about yourself and making actions based on what you want. And then envy is looking at others and generating sinful action based on others. So envy is not only jealousy, which is what we typically equate it to in modern day, but it's also just actively wanting other people to suffer so that you are elevated. So you can kind of see how they're really closely intertwined. But I hadn't up until right now thought of pride as this social thing, which it clearly is. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's the way that you negotiate your identity within yourself, but so much of how you negotiate your own identity is based on the context and the culture that you're in. So you kind of can't separate any internal processes from social environments yeah. because so much of the way that you view yourself is based on the social environments that you're part of. Yeah. Well, speaking of the social environment, your real area of expertise is specifically within high achieving students yeah. and that culture. So culturally, like, how do we see pride playing in with that? Oh, boy. I have so many thoughts on that. Yeah, I know we've kind of delved into it. But. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So a couple of things that I was thinking about before this, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of the pride that students have in relation to their academic accomplishments and the competitiveness that they learn in academic environments, I think it's kind of not their fault. Mm-hmm. I think that the current education system right now has shifted the focus away from strength development and passion exploration to demonstrated performance. The whole intro chapter of my dissertation, I do this whole like deep dive into people's conceptualizations of intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. There's this famous study that was done in like the 80s where these people asked both experts, like intelligence experts, and they also asked people like in a grocery store, on a train station, like what is intelligence? And for me, I I equate smart and intelligence like as synonymous. Mm -hmm. Even if I were to ask you to tell me what the difference is between intelligent and smart, you would probably have an answer. You still think about them as being the same thing, mm-hmm. colloquially. You know? Yeah. So they asked all these people, you know, what is intelligent? They asked experts, experts, what is intelligence? And the conclusion that they came up with is there is no consistent definition. Everyone has their own individual definition. But the thing that they found, which I think is really interesting, is you will judge someone else's intelligence based on your idea of intelligence and how intelligent you think you are in comparison to them. Hmm. So although people are like, intelligence is this, intelligence is that, you're always judging someone else's intelligence based on your own interpretation of what intelligence is. Interesting. And so if you get it into your head that intelligence means getting A's, that's going to be your benchmark. And that is not something that is innate within us. You're not born with the idea that intelligence means you're going to get an A. All of that is culturally driven. And the importance that we put on grades is given to us by teachers, counselors, parents. And the United States, like, the only way you know you're good at something is if you got an A in it. Mm-hmm. And if you get an A and that A comes easy to you, you're even more rewarded. You yes. Know? So so where does that, like, that's what is that rewarding? It's rewarding you not putting in effort. It's rewarding you not trying. Wow. Oh, yeah, so yes. it can get really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and then you think to yourself, I mean, you're basically taught not putting in effort and getting good grades means I'm smart. Yeah. So then when you're faced in college or in high school or whenever you first get that first encounter where you're actually like you actually have to try, that challenges sort of your worldview of what it is to be smart. If you've already learned to hinge your self-concept to hinge your self-perception and your self-definition on this idea of smart, which means you don't have to try, that can get threatened and thus your pride can play a part in you self-sabotaging or plagiarizing, cheating, doing whatever right. it is you have to do in order to protect that aspect of your identity. Wow. Really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm having like <laughs> – honest to God, Amanda, I am having like a mind-blown Yeah. Moment. Oh, good. <laughs> It's unbelievable. I know, right? It's smart as things being easy. Yeah. 
And so it makes... To so many students, that's what SMART is. Yeah. And so, of course, that makes those transitions that we're talking about hard. Because if you equate your intelligence with things being easy, when things are difficult, you start to question your own sense of identity. And especially for honors students, I mean... Coming from a personal perspective, like, my intelligence is a very big part of how I view myself. Right. Whether that's healthy or not. And I think that that's even more intense in, like you said, certain disciplines when certain social expectations are on you. And when you said that intelligence is equated with things that you're good at and therefore are easier to you, oh, man. Yeah. It was, yeah, that's um, amazing to me because here's the thing is throughout high school, I was always a good student. Did well in all of my classes, but it was really easy for me to do well in history and English. And so I have always assumed that history and English are, like, what I'm smartest at. And my everything I am, I owe to my mother, I swear to God. She would always say to me, Alex, you're not bad at math. You just don't like it. There's a difference. And I'm very lucky to have grown up with that perspective. Yes, for sure. Um, But... That is so interesting to me now, and because it's the things that I was praised for were the things that came easiest to me. Because, I mean, and that's natural, I think, because those are the things that you end up liking the most because yeah. they're not hard. And and it's okay to be – I mean, it's a good thing to be good at something, right? So, like, we often tell students, well, what class do you most enjoy? And sometimes those classes are the easiest. Yeah. But if if your whole educational career, they've been easy not just because you like them and you're good at them. But they're easy because you're not being challenged. Yeah. And I think that's a really big difference. And typically, yeah, you like the things that you're good at. Um, I was actually really good at math, but I never really cared about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I, when I picked psychology as an undergrad and there were statistics classes, I was like, okay, fine. Like, I know that I can do math, but I was never motivated to really understand or conceptualize the statistics because I just knew how to do it. And yeah. that was it. But But, you know, psychology was always a challenge for me, but I think I liked it because of the challenge. Yeah. As opposed to other students who think they're good at something because they've never actually been challenged in that field. And then when they actually get challenged, they're afraid to sort of push or put through effort because then it means they're not good at it anymore. So there's a little bit of a difference between being good at something and liking it Mm -hmm. and having that be your passion and then or being good at something, liking it, but never being challenged in it. You have to be challenged even the stuff you like. But I'm sure you've had experiences as an English major where you've been challenged, especially oh, in college. Yeah. Especially reading Middle English for this class. I was just going to say, <laughs> <laughs> you're reading Dante's Inferno and you know, yeah, no. oh. <laughs> medieval literature, a lot of, a lot of uh, yeah, yeah, English. <laughs> it's hard. When people come out and are like, English is easy, I'm like, let me put some books in yeah. your hands. Like, <laughs> we'll see how long you yeah. last. Yeah. Look around you. <laughs> One of you will be here. Yeah. <laughs> look to your left. Look to your right. Um, so, yeah. So I think the emphasis on uh, – sorry, I don't even know where I was <laughs> it's okay. talking. But, yeah, the emphasis of the United States education system demonstrated performance. Um, and, and a lot of that not only comes from the way that our parents and teachers were um, educated, but also the fact that the U.S. in itself is a meritocracy. Yeah. So being perceived as smart. Is a theoretical meritocracy. Is a th- oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you for the distinguishing. <laughs> um, theoretically, it's a meritocracy. But with – in the United States, if you're perceived as someone who is smart, then you yeah. get some power and status. Oh, yes. For absolutely. sure. And privilege. I mean, I, I actually want to have a whole – I want to write an article called Smart Privilege. 
it's so real. It's totally real. Yeah. And um, there's so much sort of like sense of elitism that comes along with the mm-hmm. sense of being smart. Um, you think you're smart. And so you think you're better than other people. Yeah. And students have said that to me verbatim. And it's – I can understand how where that's come from because you're labeled as gifted. You're given special classes. You're yep. pulled out programs. You're praised your whole life for being someone who's smart and giving given literal gold stars. Yeah. And, you know, you're told you're going to change the world. You're going to be president. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. And, um, you know, the, sh- the, the motivation and the goal sort of shifts. There is a reason why our smallest major in the honors program, well, if you had to rank order, perceive prestige of majors, and then think about honors students, what you think one of the smallest populated majors would be? Kinesiology? Education. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Now that you're saying it, you're absolutely right. If you think of perceived prestige, because if you're in kinesiology, you could become a doctor of physical therapy. Right. You could become an OT. You could become a education, uh, a sports physiologist. I mean, yeah. you could, there's anything in this, anything in the health professions or STEM fields, there's a perceived legitimacy. But if you start rank or, and then even in art, right? So you said pride in like art and architecture. Yeah. So like even smart kids, I shouldn't say there's a sense of snobbery, but just to use the language we were using yeah. earlier, like, you know, a sense of like, oh, I'm intelligent and I study yeah. art and architecture and art history, right? Mm-hmm. There's sort of like a, there could be a sense of prestige there. Yeah. Education. Education is probably, if not the smallest major in honors, one of the second smallest majors in honors. Yeah. It's and, probably the smallest school or college. And that's horrifying. Yeah. Because, and I have students tell me all of the time that they can't be an education major, even though I look at them and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so many students that are majoring in other subjects with the goal of becoming a teacher. Even students that are majoring in business. I know students that are majoring in business where their goal is to be a teacher, but they first think they have to graduate with a business degree, make a ton of money Mm -hmm. and then become a teacher in like early retirement. Well, that's also, like, I think about that specifically, too, and that's pride. Mm. The ability to retire early. The yes, ability money. to have a lot of money and oh, not yeah. to worry about. It. And this is a theme. It's related to greed. I was going to say, this is a theme throughout the whole podcast, is that the sins are inseparable oh, from for each sure. other. Um, that is startling. Yeah. I think that socially our perception of teachers is a humble one. Yeah. The response, I think, to a lot of education majors is similar to the response of English majors mm-hmm. where people are like, oh, how are you going to feed yourself? Right. How are you going to pay for rent? But what a lot of students will do who major in the liberal arts is say, well, I'm going to get a PhD in English. Mm-hmm. Well, or I'm going to major in English and go to law school. Or I'm going to work in politics. Like, Right. Well, moving with the education vein, I think that – When I'm thinking about teachers, it's almost like teaching and teachers and the levels that they teach at is like a terrace. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You think about a kindergarten teacher. How much perceived – what was the word you were using? Perceived – Perceived legitimacy. Yeah. How much perceived legitimacy does a kindergartner teacher have? Right? They're teaching children how to say, like, colors. Right. That's – I'm not sure if that's actually what happens. That's not what happens. I will say kindergarten is probably one of the most important grades. Okay. One yeah. of the most important ages. That's where the achievement gap starts. Well, the achievement gap starts before you even get to school. Whoa. But one of my uh, professors here has a model of academic achievement. Mm-hmm. 
And basically what his theory says is that, and it's not even just theory, it's actually the proof. And this is why we look at high school GPA and standardized test scores when we're accepting students to college, because we're trying to predict how well you're going to do in college. Why the goal is I'm only going to accept the kids who are out of 4.0 in high school so they get a 4.0 in college. Like, obviously, if you're 4.0 in high school, you're going to get a good grades in college. I shouldn't say obviously, theoretically. Yeah. But if you keep tracking that back, your grades for senior year are predicted by your junior year, are predicted by your sophomore year, are predicted by your freshman year. And that goes all the way down to kindergarten. So your grades in first grade are predicted by your grades in kindergarten. Oh, uh, yeah. And first grade predicts second grade. Second grade predicts third grade. So the kids who do really, really, really well in first and second grade are predicted to do really, really well in high school. And then with all the ability tracking that happens in grade schools and high schools, mm-hmm. you know, the tracks, the achievement gap just starts going completely V-shaped. Wow. So I've been talking a lot of, about a lot of other sins in terms of a gradient and how some elements of that gradient – are healthy and some are not. Uh-huh. But with pride, I'm seeing it as a staircase, really. And you just explained it perfectly there with the achievement gap and how that starts. But like I was saying earlier, I also see that in the role of education, right? Yeah. You start young, you're not teaching these complex subjects, or at least not to an adult. Right, right, right. And as children get older and you start teaching older children, you move on to high school and maybe they have a bit of a higher perceived legitimacy. And then you move up to PhDs and people who are teaching at colleges. And that is an honorable profession. For sure. Or at least socially, culturally, it's an honorable profession. It's, I think, perceived as more legitimate than a high school teacher, a middle school teacher, a kindergartner. And it's that exact same thing that you were talking about where like each step affects the next. And each should be as important, if not more important, in the reverse direction than the other. Absolutely. So I'm also seeing pride as developing that way. Yeah. And pride is not something that happens overnight. Oh, no. I think that can happen with other sins. I think that envy can happen overnight. I think that wrath can happen in seconds. Oh, Crimes yeah. of passion. Are you kidding me? For sure. But I think that pride... I'm pregnant. I feel a lot of rage <laughs> <laughs> overnight, immediately, not even overnight. But even if you're not pregnant. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, the rage. But... <laughs> but I yeah. think that with pride, you it has to be more gradual. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Because what you hinge your self-worth on, you don't wake up that one day and all of a sudden your self-worth is hinged on one particular thing. I don't know if there could be biological predeterminisms as to what you are prideful about. I guess if you believe in innate personalities, then, you know, there are people who are more competitive or more, yeah. you know, whatever. But a lot of it is learned and, and is based on both your social environment and the way that you psychologically and internally sort of process and negotiate your role within social contexts. Mm-hmm. And I study identity systems, right, and how your identity negotiates with contexts, with culture, um, and not negotiates. So your individual identity and all your different roles identity role identities are only able to sort of emerge and exist within certain control parameters, right? Yeah. So the control parameters is my advisor who this is his model that I'm using for my dissertation, but he describes them as the elements needed to boil water versus freeze water. You have the components of what water is made up of, right? Mm-hmm. And then based on the control parameters, based on the heat, the pressure, the cool, whatever it is, water either boils or freezes. So based on the control parameters around you as an individual, and the control parameters are context, culture, domain, and um, disposition, so like your personality. So those four things interact and based on what is around you and how you're existing within those control parameters sort of determine what kind of identity you can have. 
Yeah. So if you are a student and you go to kindergarten and you are born in a low socioeconomic area with parents who worked and you were raised by um, a caregiver who didn't read to you as many books or, you know, you're not as um, nourished or you were given a tablet, like whatever the case might be, you are not as pre-taught as other students who enter kindergarten and you both enter kindergarten at the same time and little Alex comes in from a wealthy middle-class family I shouldn't say wealthy middle class. That's an oxymoron. From a middle class family where you were read books every night. You know your ABCs before you go to kindergarten. You count to 20. Next to me, who had not those same levels of engagement, you're already going to have a leg up with teachers because you're going to learn things easier. You're going to be praised for having higher intelligence, right? You're probably automatically going to love school. Yeah. And school and you are going to like mesh, like going to mesh really well. Whereas me, I'm going to get to school. I'm going to get frustrated because I see my peers Mm -hmm. learning faster than me. My teachers, you know, sort of are dismissive of me or they're not as patient with me as they are with other students because maybe I can't get it. Yeah. So the message that you receive is school is for you. You start building a sense of self-concept and a positive, perhaps healthy sense of pride. But as we talked about earlier, how ugly that can get. Whereas me, I'm going to start hating school. And it's never, it's really hard to bounce back from whatever our early encounters of schooling are. Yeah. So, yeah, pride is definitely something that builds over time based on social environments, context, your own your own personal disposition, and sort of the different domains that you're um, engaged in. Yeah. Really interesting. Go ahead. Ask your next yeah. question. So moving on, I guess my next question is, whether or not pride is always negative because we have seen a lot of evolution in terms of movements of self-love and Mm self-care. And I think that if we apply a strict definition of pride, one that we might have seen in the Middle Ages, all of those activities would be seen as sinful in more ways than just prideful. Yeah. But with these modern movements, I think that we're trying to shift towards celebrating pride. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how we negotiate that when actually up until this point in the podcast, we really referred to pride as a negative thing. No, for sure. Yeah. So the pride parade, Right. Yes. So like, you know, and, and I, I kind of thought about that, too, when you were talking about lineage and ancestral pride. I was also thinking about like different identities and feeling prideful. Yeah. So and like in a positive way. So the gay pride parades, like civil rights movements yeah. were based like on exactly were based on, you know, black power and feeling having pride in your race and your cultural backgrounds. Also with Columbus Day becoming Indigenous People's Day. Yes, which I fully support. Me too. Let's get rid of Columbus Day. So I did some research as to how pride is – I did research to see how pride is researched from like (laughs) a broad perspective. And there's actually two facets of pride that are typically researched and they call them two different things. One is authentic pride. And authentic pride is sort of the positive confidence that comes based on specific actions or accomplishments. And then there's hubristic pride, which is the arrogant and conceited pride, um, which stems from sort of global attributions of one's value. So basically, like in that regard, kind of how we said from the very beginning that pride is like is twofold, right? I guess it's I don't know if it's gradient or on a continuum or if it's a fork. I'm not really sure. But there's sort of two legs to pride, right? There's the good pride and the bad pride. So the authentic pride, I think, is the the positive self-love, proud of one's accomplishments pride. And then there's the arrogant and conceited pride. But no, pride is not always a negative thing, especially if it's authentic pride, especially if it's you being proud of something you worked really hard for. 
proud of your identity, proud to be fighting for rights, proud to be fighting for justice. Mm -hmm. That type of pride, I think, is positive. But as we mentioned earlier, if it's based on something that you're not willing to explore, you're not willing to develop, you're not willing to be confronted on, or you're not willing to have challenged in any way, yeah. that's when it becomes really fragile and really easily threatened. And when something in your identity is easily threatened, you tend to cling too hard to it. And thus, that's when pride can get ugly. So my follow-up question would be, how can we distinguish between authentic pride and hubristic pride ourselves before it happened? Because when I think of hubris, the classic example comes to my mind of Julius Caesar. And I'm not sure that Caesar could see that he was hubristic until he got killed. Yeah. And so how can we, as prideful people figure out in this moment how our pride will impact us in the future if it's positive pride or negative pride yeah is there a question we can ask ourselves i don't even think it's just a question you can ask yourself i think it's a question you have to ask of other people oh i really think that sometimes the only way to know whether or not you have negative pride is to get negative feedback yeah okay i but i think it's also being open to it right so here's a personal example of pride when I was in grad school, well, I'm still in grad school. So I did a four plus one program in my undergrad. Yeah. Um, I did psych. So um, I did a four year psych and then I stayed on for a fifth year to get my master's in social psych. And my advisor during my fifth year of my master's program. Now, mind you, I had a perfect 4.0 GPA. I, you know, all of the demonstrable achievement measures were there. Yeah. And um, but like, honestly, I didn't really – I wasn't really engaged. Like I was doing so many things outside of the classroom. I basically majored in psychology and minored in extracurricular activities. <laughs> I was an RA. I was president of my sorority. I was in student affairs. I was in like all of these things, right? And I was really good at leadership roles. And I, I'm an extrovert. I love talking to other people. I'm very organized. Like part of the reason why I loved a lot of the activities that, was, that I was involved in was also because I got to plan and organize a lot yeah. of things. Hence why here in my job right now, I plan Experience Temple Day. I do all the recruitment events. Like I like public outward performance type of like engagement with a lot of people. Yeah. And so my advisor, when I was in grad school, now again, perfect 4.0, majoring in psychology, had my thesis topic picked out. She looked at me and said, I don't think you should be a psychologist. I think you should be in PR. Oh. And – Instead of taking that feedback and thinking about what she really meant by it, I stonewalled it. And I was like, how dare she think that I'm not smart enough to be a psychologist? Mm. That's the message that I heard. Instead of hearing her say to me, you have a lot of strengths that are very well aligned with public relations or like strategic communication type fields, I heard her say to me, you're not smart enough. And I dismissed her and I thought I'm going to prove her wrong. And it motivated me in an unhealthy way to outperform her expectations of me. Yeah. Be like I just thought she was dismissive of me. But 
you know, in hindsight, it was my pride, my ugly pride sort of getting in the way of someone telling me you could actually be really good at this other thing. Like you should know your strengths. Yeah. And I didn't know my strengths. There's a lot of reasons why I picked psychology. But like if I had to go back and do it again when I pick it, maybe not. It served me well and I really like my life and I'm getting a PhD in it and I love what I'm studying. So it's all worked out for me. Yeah. But would I also have probably been really good in Stratcom and PR? Yeah, I do it every day anyway. <laughs> So, um, but that's sort of an example of how I was given what I perceived to be negative feedback and I wasn't open to it. So I think if you think that pride is starting to get in your way, have a conversation with, with someone who knows you really well, ask for hard feedback, but then you have to be willing to listen to it. Yeah. So when I look at students who have, when I see that they have C's and D's in all their math and science classes, but they have A's in their English classes yeah. and I say to them, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, why are you majoring in this thing? And they say, no, I'm going to be a doctor. No, I'm going to be a doctor. Even if, yes, they totally should be a doctor, but they're just struggling right now. They have to be willing to explore and to think and really truly reflect on whatever is sort of being challenged of them instead of stonewalling and creating a barrier again and continuously beating their head against that brick wall yeah. without feeling as though they can take a step back and perhaps walk around or take a different path. So I think getting hard feedback from people who know you and love you and then really processing it and really thinking about it. I also think you can help avoid negative pride by being open to exploration and not feeling threatened by it. Yeah. So if someone if someone suggests to you that you explore a different avenue, be open to that. So if someone had said to you your freshman year, Alex, you're studying criminal justice, but I actually think you'd be a really good geologist. Yeah. You, your freshman year, probably would have been like, stop, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like you had to come to that conclusion on your own. Yeah. So that's also part of the other the other way in which you can kind of know. And, and unfortunately, some people never get to a point where they're challenged in a way where they can actually be reflective and like self-aware, where they can recognize that their pride is harmful. But sometimes, you know, for me, for example, like I had to continue living my life and like developing and growing and maturing. Yeah. And eventually I came to a point where pride started to become less harmful for me. Um, but it takes time yeah. and it's hard. It's hard to sort of come to that conclusion. So you have to check yourself. You have to be humble. You have to reflect. And I think you also have to get hard feedback from other people yeah. and not just stonewall it, but really process it. Um, your shift to like other people and how other people can help you determine your pride actually reminds me of my own experience. Yeah. That is kind of a foil to yours. It's kind of the opposite. Okay. It's a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> It's okay. But I'm going to share it for the good of the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure your friends are on the edge of their seat. Oh, yeah. Many of them have heard. So I was a Latin student in high school. Cool. Was very prideful. Um, Latin's a hard, to la hard language to learn. I have a knack for languages. I really enjoy them. And so it came to me very, very easily. And I worked all the way up to Latin 3, which was the highest level offered by my high school. And at that point, it's nine kids in the class. So we all knew each other really well. And we all like knew how each other were doing. Some people were really struggling. I was frequently at the top. And I don't say that from a place of pride. I say no, it from a place of fact. That was the fact. And so every year there's this thing called the National Latin Exam. And it's open to every high school in the country. Uh, you skip two periods of class time and go take this National Latin Exam. It doesn't hurt you. It costs like $4. If you do bad, nobody has to know. If you do well, you can put it on college applications. So a lot of people choose to take it even if they feel like, I don't know if I'll do well. And 
the time to do national Latin exam rolled, rolled around. And in Latin three, my teacher was standing at the front of the class and said, so uh, who wants to do the national Latin exam? Raise your hand if you're interested. And I didn't raise my hand because I was in a ton of APs and I didn't want to miss two periods of an AP class. Um, I prioritized that over taking this exam, which I didn't feel like would help me that much if I did well. And my teacher at that time, God love him, looked me dead in the eye in front of the whole class and said, Alex, why is your hand not up? And I said, I don't need a test to tell me how smart I am. Whoa, snap. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great response. It came out of some visceral place in me. Yeah. But that's, I mean, okay, keep going. It came out of a visceral place in me. I do not remember formulating that thought and then saying it. This entire interaction was so, like, carnally animalistic. I just was completely operating on intuition, which is was not the norm for me at that time. And he well, looked because at, you want to constantly please authority figures. Yes. Because you are a high-achieving student who is sort of groomed to want to make people like you. Yeah. Yeah. And so he looked at me and said, did you really just say that? And I doubled down and I said yes. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. And I was super scared throughout the whole class because after that, he said, we'll talk after class. And I said, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. So I go through that whole class. Like, my heart is racing the whole time because it's so atypical of me to, like, really challenge authority like that. The only time I ever felt capable of tra- challenging authority in that way was because I was like, I know that I'm too smart to take this. Like, I know that I don't care about enough about this exam. I don't care about the grade. I care about being smart. And for me, I was like, I will be smart if I go to my APs and I learn my stuff, not if I take this exam. And so after class, I walked up to his desk and he looked at me and he was like, when you said that, I was livid. I was really upset that you said that. I thought that was an immature thing of you to say. And as I kept thinking about it throughout class, it reminded me of myself. (laughs) And actually, I really admire you for saying that. And not a lot of high school students have that confidence i really admire that so keep it in check but you're fine and actually that's what he ended up writing my college recommendation letter about it's awesome so i think that people can also help you gauge when your pride is good it's not only people checking you when you're getting into that hubristic pride Mm -hmm. it's people reflecting on your actions objectively and saying actually you know what i think that that's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I wonder so much about your visceral animalistic reaction to your teacher, how much that was also driven by pressure that you felt. This was your senior year? Uh, this was my junior year. Oh, okay. But you were in other APs. Yep. So just the pressure that you felt from a variety of different sources to be performing in other ways. And you knew, like, you sort of had to balance or measure whether or not this test was actually going to do anything for you. It wasn't Mm going to get you college credit, whereas your APs were. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder how much of your sort of visceral reaction was just a reaction to the pressure cooker that you felt as though you were in at the time. Yeah. There was an honor student in Seth's class last semester who basically was doing her teens and tweens projects on basically like smart kids a lot of what she's doing was actually like what my dissertation is on yeah which is like how students make meaning of being smart and all that good stuff because that's essentially my dissertation question the title of her paper was are we burning the smart cookies isn't that so good i just got chills i know 
I think, again, it all comes back to the environments that you guys are being educated in and the pressure that you feel, both internal and external, and how it's perpetuated by parents and teachers and peers, too. Yeah. I just think that's such a perfect title for something. Like, are we burning the smart cookies? And I really honestly think the answer is yes. I agree. Because we're moving the goal away from learning and passion and strengths development to gold star collecting. And that's something that we at Temple Honors are constantly trying to combat. Yeah. And I think that when you're in that mentality of gold star earning, this goes back to what I was saying about Tetris. Actually, we talked about this on the Envy episode with Devin Powers. You're always chasing something that's moving. Yeah. It's like Gatsby. Yeah. You'll always be reaching for something that you'll never actually be able to grasp. That little light. And I feel that that is more pertinent when you talk about hubristic pride and this gold star earning pride Mm -hmm. and accumulating titles. There's nothing of substance that's backing you up. You're Uh just aimlessly chasing after this moving object. And it's the substance that makes it fragile. The lack of substance that makes it fragile. Yeah. Because it's like identity exploration, right? So like if you never really took the time to explore why you wanted to be an English major Mm -hmm. and you had no actual reason, when someone challenged you on it, no one likes to feel unstable like that. No Mm -hmm. one wants to be challenged on something that they they actually don't have an answer for because that doesn't make you feel competent. And then you fight back, sort of like lash out and Mm -hmm. you get really rigid because there's no substance. If you had a really good – think about when you are asked a question in a class Mm -hmm. and you know the answer, really solidly have a great conceptual understanding of the answer, how confident you feel giving the answer. But when you're asked a question in class and you barely did the reading and you have like the surface level understanding, the anxiety that you feel when you're asked. Yeah. The anxiety that you feel and you sort of like give an answer and you hope that no one buys on to the fact that you didn't do the readings all the way, right? That's the same sort of thing when your pride is based on something that you haven't actually explored. And you haven't actually had challenge or you haven't actually worked for. And I think that that helps you get a difference between authentic pride and hubristic pride too. So kind of wrapping up. Yeah. Is pride deadly? Yes. I think pride is deadly because what you hinge your self-worth on can actually affect your mental health and well-being. So I think it can actually literally be deadly because anything you – wrap your, you know, anything that your mental health can actually be contingent on can be very, very deadly. If something that you hinge your self-worth on is threatened, that can affect your increased vulnerability to depression and anxiety. It can prevent help seeking. So if you're really prideful in something, it can prevent you from seeking help. It makes people rigid and stubborn in belief systems, even when faced with conflicting evidence. I think we see a lot of that in national political veins right now. So yeah, I think of all of the sins, it's probably the most deadly because I think it's most tied to our internal sense of self. And when your sense of self is threatened, that's when you become vicious. So first of all, thank you. You're welcome for sitting down. This is very fun. Yeah, I like to think so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you also to Temple University's Honors Program for allowing us to use their space and equipment, to Ben Webster for our theme song, and to Dr. Carissa Harris for academic support of this project. And to our listeners, keep sinning. Ooh, what an outro. (laughs) Thanks. Stay deadly. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Keep sinning.